Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Jens Ekstein. He's an investment partner at Hevolution Foundation. It's a Saudi Arabia-backed fund that supports basic research in healthy aging and invests in startups to translate that science into interventions that help people live healthier, longer lives. These efforts are sometimes branded as increasing health span, if not necessarily lifespan. Jens is based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and has had a long career in biotech and venture capital. In this conversation, we discuss how he first got interested in this field about 20 years ago, how the field has evolved, and where some of the opportunities are to help people live healthier and longer lives. This isn't all about coming up with some overhyped magic pill. There are a lot of factors at play in aging and diseases of aging. I think listeners will appreciate Jens's scientifically grounded approach that separates the signal from the noise. Now, please join me and Jens Eckstein on The Long Run. Jens Eckstein, welcome to The Long Run. Hello. So, Jens, I have to start by asking a simple question. How old are you? Chronologically and biologically. <laughs> so chronologically, I just turned 60 this year, so it's a big year. Um, biologically, I'm not sure. I haven't done any of the clubs, but I don't feel like an old person yet. I ask, you know, because this is a, an emerging concept and, and a bit slippery at the moment, um, <laughs> but uh, relevant really for the conversation that we're going to have about lifespan, health span. And, and how to live longer and healthier lives. No, you're right. I mean, um, this is a very, very pertinent discussion. And almost everybody asks this question in, in the field, you know, when they start a conversation with somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so let's just rewind a little bit on how you got here. Um, so where are you from originally? Originally from Southern Germany, not Bavaria, which is very important, but there's the southwest state called Baden-Württemberg, and there's a beautiful lake called Lake Constance, and very close to the mountains. Um, yeah, that's where I pretty much grew up. Went to school, um, also started university there, um, and uh, that's a how long time ago now. How did you first get interested in science there in southern Germany? There's really no good rhyme or reason. I mean, you know, I... Uh, I was trying to figure out what to do. Um, there's a university at the lake called University of Constance. Um, it's a very, very beautiful university, and uh, the life sciences have been very strong there. I was playing with the thought of medical school for a little bit, but then, you know, really didn't think it was the right thing for me. And then I started chemistry, partly because chemistry... It's actually hands-on. You, you know, half of the stuff in chemistry, you're actually in the lab and you're doing things, which, you know, really was very attractive to me. I always like to do things with my hands. Um, so that's that's how I ended up in chemistry. My parents, neither of my parents are scientists. So I'm, I think I'm actually the first scientist in the larger family. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So how did uh, study of chemistry evolve more toward biochemistry? Yeah, it was actually an accident. So I, I actually was on my path to study inorganic catalysts um, because it was fascinating in the lab because you worked on a nitrogen line because almost everything you did was oxygen sensitive. So you always had to flood every 
vessel with nitrogen. And so I had this elaborate construction of a pipeline flooded with nitrogen. Um, and he had beautiful colors. But then one reaction actually blew up in my face. <laughs> and, uh, and I got a whiff of H2 selenium um, and was actually sick as a dog for, for a few weeks with so-called selenium. Um, what do you call that? I don't know what, what the, the, the English word is for that. And then I decided I don't want to go back and work with toxic stuff. And that's how I went into biological chemistry, actually, you know, thinking as a chemist, but within biological systems. That brought me to enzyme reaction mechanisms. Um, and this brought me eventually to drug discovery and drug design. That's funny. These proteins, these enzymes, you know, you can bind with them and they're not going to literally blow up in your face. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so how did you end up coming to the United States? It was really through my PhD advisor. Um, he had a long-standing uh, relationship uh, to um, a lab at Harvard University that was all on bioluminescence. So that's actually my PhD is on bioluminescence. Um, and I did actually most of my experimental work in Harvard. Um, that was in the late 80s. And, um, you know, then I um, defended my thesis and then I thought, well, I need to do a postdoc, ended up uh, in San Francisco at UCSF. Um, and the, the rest is history, really. I mean, since then, I've, I've, I've been in the U.S. So your PhD was biochemistry. You're studying enzymes, metabolic reactions. Um, at what point did... The, it clicked for you that, uh, you know, you might want to apply this toward pharmaceutical chemistry, developing drugs that, you know, affect these interactions. I mean, it was partly through my postdoc. So I worked on on the enzyme mechanism or the mechanism of a drug, trifluoromethyluridine. Um, it's an old cancer drug and people really have no idea how it works. And that was pretty much my postdoc um, project. I figured out how it actually works and it's, it's, it ends up to be a suicide inhibitor. Um, and so I got into really thinking about a drug and what does a drug do with a protein. Um, and um, my professor there, uh, Professor Santi, Daniel Santi, he was actually dabbling in biotech back then already. Um, and he then pretty much was the the one who connected me to biotech, and it ended up in Boston uh, with Mitotics um, um, Incorporated. Mitotics is one of the first cell cycle companies, and uh, yeah, and I started there as a, a biochemist um, and got a, became a project leader fairly quickly. I was pretty much in drug discovery at that point. So you you uh, left academia, got a job in biotech um, with um, your hands on. The science. Hands-on science, yeah, running a lab, did a lot of uh, high-throughput screening, you know, looking for uh, new compounds, um, did a lot of the preclinical stuff. Also always was the guy who did a lot of the data management, you know, looking at data, structure-activity relationships, and also structural biology. So that was kind of the, the basket. I was, I was feeling pretty happy. Now, you're, you mentioned cell cycle. What kind of applications did this first company have in mind? Were they, were they thinking about cancer or were they, was aging on the, 
the table at that point? No, AJ was not on the table. It was cancer. Um, it was, I mean, cell side clearly, you know, it's dysregulated in, in oncology. So, um, yeah, those were the first uh, ideas about using cell cycle inhibitors. And, you know, there are, there are now drugs actually in patients, CDK4 inhibitors as a class that actually made it eventually. And the second um, half was actually proteostasis. So at Mitotics, we also looked at uh, ubiquitin-dependent um, degradation of proteins. Um, so that was maybe the, the first inkling a little bit, you know, looking at at the, the human body in a broader sense that there is actually, you know, proteostasis going on and you're looking at a system where you can actually take things in and out. Um, so those were kind of the two big projects in the company. What really captivated you about working in biotech at this time? In the, I guess it would have been the, the mid-90s? It was the early mid-90s, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think... It was still the combination of hands-on work, but also then working on meaningful things. I mean, it, you know, I never, I think, was was the guy who was born for the ivory tower. I always was thinking, so why am I doing this? Um, so thinking about diseases and patients, and you know, how can you actually work on a drug that will eventually help people? That was that was really the main motivator, and quite honestly, has has remained the motivator for me until today. Mm-hmm. So you worked, um, you, you started in at the, the ground floor, so to speak, in, in companies, uh, and then you migrated over to venture capital. Um, how did that happen? Yeah, so um, that, again, was not planned at all. Um, so I, from my topics, I went to a second startup. I was actually the first employee after the CEO called Ananta Pharmaceuticals. Um, they eventually actually brought a, um, an HCV drug to market together with Advi, so one of the HCV drugs out there is from Enanta Times. Yeah, Jay Lula. Jay Lula, yeah, Jay Lula was my boss um, at some point. Um, but there was one investor that was both at Mitotics and uh, at Enanta, that was TVM, a transatlantic fund between Munich and Boston. So they saw me, you know, many times doing the science dog and pony show, <laughs> and. Uh, you know, at a, at a certain point, they were actually were looking for an early stage partner in in Boston, and uh, when you know things at Atlanta moved more and more to the clinic, uh, there was a time uh, a point in time where um, you know I was looking for the next thing for me to do, and that's when they asked me whether I wanted to join them, and um, it was actually. At the same time, I also thought about going to business school because I thought that's a good idea. And I applied to business school, actually got accepted uh, at the MIT uh, HST um, program. But the letter for the acceptance at MIT came exactly at the same day as the offer letter from TVM. And the dollar difference for a young family was significant. So <laughs> I ended up taking the, the offer from TVM. <laughs> it's a funny twist of fate. Um, sounds like you know, a case of right place, right time. I mean, this is a transatlantic fund. They've got German connections. Here you are, you from Germany, speak the language, uh, Harvard-educated biochemist, uh, some experience in industry. Uh, you, you could go between both worlds. Exactly. Yeah, and and that, that has remade my life to some extent uh, because I've always been transatlantic, um, you mm-hmm. know, even for the rest of my career until today. Yeah, so you were at TVM for uh, a good stretch of time. You made a bunch of investments, uh, something like... 
eight years. What was the most important thing that, that happened to you there? I mean, it was really learning venture. You know, venture is something you cannot study. It's it's really an apprenticeship. And uh, I was lucky to have a great mentor with uh, Stephen Hoffman, um, who was uh, yeah just a great guy to work together with. Um, and at the same time, I also got into the Kaufman Fellowship Program, um, which was a tremendous help because you know you got into a cohort of people where you were actually allowed to ask very stupid questions. Um, so that 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 helped. That helped me tremendously. Um, so yeah, I really learned the business at TVM, and um, and I think we might come back to this, but but that's also when the first thing happened in terms of thinking about longevity, and that that was Sertris Pharmaceuticals. Uh huh. Uh huh. So you invested in Sertris while at TVM. Yeah. So I was pretty much the guy in the background who did a lot of the work. You know, this was with together with Crystal Westfall. You know, this was pretty much a startup from scratch. And um, David Sinclair, of course, was uh, the scientific co-founder and an ex-postdoc of David Sinclair, Kevin Bitterman, and I. We actually worked a lot on the initial enzymology. You know, the the, the screening, the assay development stuff uh, in the beginning. So I helped out a lot. Um, Stephen was the lead partner, but I did a lot of the work, and I was actually an observer on the board as well, um, and stayed an advisor uh, researcher for quite some time. Now, for folks not familiar, uh, David Sinclair was a professor at Harvard, um, still is. Concept there was um, sirtuins, these compounds that are known for uh, being present in red wine, um, may have uh, an ability to extend lifespan. Um, and uh, company Sertris was uh, founded to um, build on this emerging biology, develop small molecules that would be a lot more potent because, well, no one's going to drink enough wine to get the kind of effect <laughs> that we thought would would be needed, right? Um, what what would you say about like what the concept was at Sertris? I mean, this was really a very exciting new class of proteins where, you know, the biology was really unknown. And David Sinclair, um, you know, did some of the pioneering work around sirtuins. Um, and even today, it's really hard to explain what exactly the sirtuins are doing. They are, they're a little bit, you know, they're, they're like little master switches that switch back and forth between different metabolism and, of course, NAD. Um, so... Um, they're very, very complicated. The enzymology is extremely complicated. You know, to actually come up with the right assays to do a high throughput screen was really challenging. Um, but they're clearly important. You know, we're getting now um, more and more genetic association data as well, where it's clear that sirtuins play a very, very important role. I think we're still uncovering the biology of sirtuins. Um, it's a family of, I think, seven human genes now, one through seven. Um, all of them are a little bit different, um, and uh, I think eventually we, we, will, we will see uh, drugs that will target sirtuins um, going into humans. Um, but it is, you know, it is much harder than we thought it would be when we started Sertris. Um There's no doubt about that. Well, there's a long story here, um, a mixed bag. I think most people would say at best, um, where Sertris, uh raised a bunch of money. Um, got a lot of attention. Uh, some might say hype um, about the the key to longevity uh, was eventually acquired by GSK for something like eight hundred million dollars. Yeah. Uh, but um, the company never did 
deliver any of these drugs that um, people were hoping for. And and along the way, there was questions about, um, well, how do you even measure progress or success? Are, are you trying to extend lifespan or uh, are you trying to treat diseases of, associated with aging that um, might be more tractable in a regulatory sense? Um, <laughs> well, I, 15 years later, <laughs> what, what are some of your takeaways about uh, the Sertris experience? Yeah, I mean, it, it was really a completely new field. Um, I mean, we, we had tons of discussions how to go forward. And I think ultimately, compounds didn't go forward because at that time, you know, we were just not able to, to come up with a feasible clinical strategy. How do you actually now go about bringing this into human? You ended up, you know, in trials that are very difficult, like the diabetes, um, where, you know, the bar to actually get a signal is very, very high. Um, so I think that's where uh, eventually the, the first wave of certain compounds ended uh, because also, you know, it ended up within GSK, had to compete with other programs. And because a lot of things were unknown still about the certains, I think uh, they, the first wave ran their, ran their cause. Um, so, but I think it was, it was, it was for me a really interesting experience because, you know, Christoph Westphal is a master of bringing people together and bringing people into a tent. We had a huge scientific advisory board. I mean, I think almost all the names that are important today, even today in, in the whole longevity, healthy aging space, um, they were there. You know, I've known a lot of those people like Eric Verden. Johan Alwerts, you know, I've known them since Sertra's times, and that is, of course, fantastic now for where I am now. Uh, but we were just too early. I think this was just too early. Um, the, the people that really haven't thought about the concept that you will drive a drug program that's not, you know, geared towards a very specific disease, but it's actually geared to healthy tissues, to homeostasis, to systems biology, that was just not apropos uh, when Ben Sertus, um was trying to to figure out how to how to do all of this. Yeah, the tools, the biomarkers, the regulatory frameworks for even thinking about how to measure progress. I mean, th those things just weren't weren't really there. That's right. Yeah, uh, this was the mid two thousands, the kind of er early to mid two thousands. I think Sertrus was acquired two thousand eight. Um, yeah. Okay, but now, like, uh, so you're at TVM during this time. You're you're witnessing this. Uh, eventually, you went to go work in corporate venture capital, SR1, uh, which was the corporate arm of GSK, uh, and made lots and lots of investments across different fields. Um, it, but what brought you back to aging, this field? Yeah, so, I mean, SR1 was fantastic. And again, the, those were all... You know, connections again, because Christoph Westwall was actually at GSK through the acquisition of Sertris, and then Christoph started Longwood Funds, and then Christoph suggested to the GSK leader, Jip, hey, I know a guy who would be a great president for SR1. So I came into corporate venture, learned a ton there, because I really started to appreciate, you know, the 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 the, the brain trust for clinical development that it, that is in the big pharma companies. Um, that's just invaluable. You know, the, all the knowledge that's there, all the things that have gone wrong. Um, so that was a tremendous learning curve, and I think SR1 I did really well in the time I was there. Eventually, GSK decided to spin 
as I went out, and I was looking kind of for a new thing. Um, we're not really sure what I wanted to do. It was clear that the one thing I liked most is starting new companies or getting really, really early with new ideas. Um, you know, curiosity is probably what drives me most in life. Um, and at that time, I was actually approached by two young German tech entrepreneurs, Niels Regge and Ole Menching. They, they, they found me at JP Morgan and started talking about the idea that, you know, tech investments are boring and they, you know, they made some money and they wanted to actually do longevity um, if I can help them. And, uh, you know, at first I thought, okay, I, I can advise them. You know, these are two German entrepreneurs. As a Kaufman fellow, you, of course, help entrepreneurs. Um, and, you know, after six months or so, it become, became obvious that it would make a ton of sense for me joining Apollo Health Ventures, which uh, was their, their firm, um, and really try to raise a, a fund around the idea that we do investments exclusively in the field around longevity or healthy aging. Um, so that's that's how that happened. And again, you know, transatlantic because the fund was with, between Berlin and Boston. So I was, what I was, what year was this that you made the move to Apollo Health Ventures and decided to really go all in with this focus on investments in uh, longevity or anti aging? That, that was in twenty nineteen. Twenty nineteen. Now. Can you say a little bit about what was what had happened in those intervening years, roughly, you know, more than a decade since the end of Sertris? Because uh, there had been a number of pretty high profile companies that had been funded by venture capital. Uh, I'm thinking Calico out of the, the Google group um, and uh, uh, Unity Biotech was another one uh, backed by Arch. Different ideas on how to um, approach health span, healthy aging. Um, what what had happened in the scientific community that, that got you, made you think that this was actually a, a more auspicious time to make these kind of long-term bets? Yeah, I think what happened is really, I mean, JRO science, um, which is now the new term for all the the science that has directly to do with with the aging process and, you know, what ha what happens to a biological system when it ages has really gone from broad concepts, you know, has come from observations in in worms, you know, a lot in C. elegans, a lot of the work of Cynthia Kenyon, David Sinclair, which was kind of early work, fairly phenotypic um, in, in their readouts, has really become molecular. You know, you, you suddenly talk about druggable targets. And and that's that's a game changer for drug discovery because um, you suddenly think in the old-fashioned way of, oh, there are pathways and there's a target and, hey, I can get a, a structure there and then I can, I can target it with small molecules. Um, so that was one big development. And then the other development really were, was the tools. You know, if you, if you look at what you can do in biology now uh, with omics, you know, be it on the, on the mRNA level, be it on the protein level, you get so much more information. Um, and because aging is a system-wide phenomenon, you need systems, biology, parameters, and, and, and tools. And they really have come online in the time. And, uh, and that was really um, the point where I thought, now you can actually look at these things in a much more holistic way, where you don't have to kind of do a, a, a blind 
lead to some kind of an application and you hope it works, but you can actually try to figure out, you know, what's the fingerprint and how do I connect a molecular fingerprint of a response to a certain um, drug? How do I relate this to the aging process? And from there, how could I actually um, connect the dots towards development of a disease? So all these things kind of came together in the last five years, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How does calorie restriction fit into this understanding? Because that's one area where it, oh, I, I think we all know that works um, to across species. And that's been known for a very long time uh, that calorie restrictions help people live longer. <laughs> but you don't necessarily have all the, if you're eating so few calories, you don't really have the energy to live the kind of vigorous life that most people want to live. Um but have we learned something about the biology that's pointing us toward how to mimic that uh, pharmacologically? I, I think we're, we're getting we're getting closer. I mean, I think the amazing thing is, you know, I think, um, you know, I think the time between Sertris and now was very much driven by the whole longevity idea, which means, you know, how how can we live longer? And that was pretty much driven by the early experiments in animals from, you know, starting from yeast and to see elegance and then maybe to mice where, you know, you, you were able to actually extend lifespan through an intervention. And that intervention could have been caloric restriction. So it could have been through, you know, the way how you take in nutrients and how much nutrients to take in. It could have been, it could be done through pharmacological intervention because we you know rapamycin is one of those drugs that has been out there for quite some time and very um, generally, you know, really uh, shows a longevity effect in, in, in organisms. Um, but we also know now, and again, that comes to more the, of the systems biology approach um, in looking uh, at the aging process. That nature itself has has shown us that longevity is is possible. I mean, you have if you look at you know all the animal world out there, the variety you have in lifespan is mind boggling. You know, you really have an incredible span there. So that tells you that the biology can can do that. You know, biology as such is not the limiting factor because there are animals that live a hundred years and live two hundred years. Um, and then there are other animals, you know, that live a day, but you have the whole span and it's the same amino acids, it's the same DNA. Um, so biology itself can provide longevity. That that is that is really not the limiting factor. And now we try to bring all these things together. Also, more and more now with the understanding that living longer in the end is not the ultimate goal, but it's really if you look at caloric restriction, for example, I mean the the animals that are uh, on caloric restrictions, they're actually really healthy. You know, if you think about all the bad diseases, you know, cardiovascular, cancer, uh, fibrotic disease, those animals do not show any of those. Um, so they actually are really incredibly healthy. And and that that is kind of the how the discussion has shifted, I think, today. It is really about living longer healthy. It's all about health. Um, and we know it can be done. Nature shows us that it can be done. And now we try to figure out how we can actually, you know, mimic something like caloric restriction with a pharmacological intervention. So we're we're always going to have these diseases that creep up with time. You mentioned some of them, like type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's. I mean, there's a lot of things going on. 
that accumulate with time um, and and show up in those particular pathologies. What you're talking about is something a little different. That's about you know taking a average, reasonably healthy forty year old and putting them on a program where their their cell systems remain in hopefully a, a healthier homeostasis and and don't go down the road to some of these um, these pathologies of aging. Is that is that a way to think about it? Like health span, living healthy longer? Exactly. It's 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 really about the health span. And I think that's my main motivation today. And I think that's where overall the field is moving towards. Um, also because we understand aging more and more. I mean, some people say that aging is, is a disease. I don't really uh, agree with that term. I think aging is a process. And that process um, is driven by time. And over time, you have a system where some things are go out of whack a little bit, you know. Um, and and then you get the accumulation of things that go out of whack, and eventually you hit a threshold where the system, you know, moves towards a certain disease. And that's what we know about disease today. Um, so I think the field is moving away from the term disease. What we are really looking for, when and where is this function happening? And is it reversible? And can I measure it? Um, that is really what we're trying to achieve. It's a very high bar because, as you say, you know, a lot of those things happen in, you know, perfectly healthy people to our eyes. But aging as such and dysfunction that comes with the process of aging happens pretty much in our teens. You know, it starts in our teens. Um, you know, where things are starting to go wrong, we only see the consequence of things that have gone wrong over a long time where we develop a disease. Um, so we need to figure out how do, can we measure and ascertain when things are out of whack. And then, you know, how can we develop clinical strategies where we measure what's out of whack and then intervene uh, either pharmacologically or with lifestyle or with nutrition. Um, there's several ways how we can intervene. If you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday Front Points column, and get insightful commentary from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Group subscriptions are available at a discount. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. And I'm going to be in Cambridge, Massachusetts on January 23rd for an event that supports the Timmerman Traverse for Damon Running Cancer Research Foundation. It's called Bridging the Gap, and it's organized by Sufyan Ablahuda, a member of my latest team on a mission to raise $1 million for cancer research. An outstanding lineup of scientists and entrepreneurs make this a can't-miss event. I'm personally moderating a conversation with Phil Sharp of MIT and Vicky Sato of Denali Therapeutics and Veer Biotechnology. Get your tickets now. Check out a link to the registration page in the show notes on TimmermanReport.com. Now, in a field that's still early, and I think you could call nascent in some ways, there's... Um, there's a fine line between legitimate science and optimistically charging ahead into this uh, unknown field, and then eh, where it tips over into, you know, false claims and snake oil sales. And there is that. 
out there in the healthy living, health span, anti-aging world. I know you really try to associate with the the former <laughs> rather than the latter. Um, but how much of an obstacle is that to this field in general? Just that creates a, a cloud of skepticism, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's, yeah. I mean, living long or you know being immortal is not a new thing. You know, I think you can probably go as all the way back to the Neanderthals and, you know, there were some mythical stories about, you know, ever living beings. So this is not new, you know, this is a fascination for mankind. Um, and I think some of the things you see in the modern version of the longevity field, you know, is, is mythical. It's definitely not driven by science. Um, it's, it's very much driven by anecdotal uh, stories where people think that they do one thing or the other thing and it makes them feel much better. Um, but, you know, there's really no proof that the outcome, meaning living longer, healthier, actually is there. Um, there's actually very limited data of interventions that clearly will lead to a longer, healthier life. Um, despite all the, um, yeah, all, all the Coverage by the press, you know, it's a very, very hot field and there's some very colorful people out there who, you know, pretty much um, are biohackers and and try things and claim that, you know, they're, they're doing much better. Um, the proof really ultimately is how much longer do they live and how much longer would they have lived um, with, or how, how long would, it, would they have lived without the interventions they're doing? And there's almost no data for that. So um, you really have to take most of the things out there with a grain of salt. Um, you know, there's a very um, um, interesting program out there, the ITP program. Um, it's the Intervention Therapeutics Program, where, you know, you can actually apply and you can have compounds tested and, and they will test it in a mouse population to see whether the drugs have any effect. I think that program is now definitely older than a decade. Um, and they have tested, I think, more than 100 different um, drugs. Essentially, only four drugs out of that 100 have showed effects in longevity and not huge. I mean, it's between you know, five, six, eight percent to maybe up to 20% for rapamycin, which is still kind of the, the champion. Everything else that people have claimed um, hasn't really shown any effect. Granted, those are mice, uh, not humans. That is always a caveat. Um, but, you know, if it really comes down to real outcomes data that are scientifically vetted and scientifically proven, um, there's very, very little out there. Well, this ITP program you reference, are, are these essentially N of one longitudinal experiments? Because it's it's awfully hard to run a, you know, a well-controlled, large, randomized study of this, of the nature that you describe. No, no, the, this is this is super science. I mean, um Rich Miller, who runs this program, um, you know, they they really have from from the very beginning. Um, put some parameters down that are really highly scientific. So this is these are large cohorts. These are heterogeneous mice, not purebreds. Um, they're uh, looking at males and females, um, and they really you know run the experiment as long as the cohorts live. So these are you know these are experiments that go years. Um, 
So no, this is the real deal. Um, the biggest, the biggest um, issue is these are mice. You know, we all know if you're a mouse today, there's a you have a lot of therapeutics um, to choose from uh, that never have worked in men. So yeah, we've certainly cured cancer in mice many times. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, well, but then there's also just the 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 challenge that that you're up against here. It's um, there are a lot of things that we know about healthy living that have been gathered from observational studies, population health, you know, eat your fruits and vegetables, get seven, eight hours sleep, exercise uh, regularly each week, don't smoke, don't drink too much, um, you know, hopefully see your friends every once in a while. <laughs> um, even, um, and I want to ask you about one in particular, the, the um, sauna is one that I think there's some observational data that's kind of interesting and that you've actually adopted into your routine. So maybe the question here, Jens, is like knowing everything that you know about um, this field of healthy living for the long term, what kinds of things do do you do and not do? Yeah. Um, so I think there are, there are clearly a few things that everybody can do today. Um one of them is being active. So keep moving um, is is incredibly important. I think, you know, our sedentary lifestyle is definitely not good for healthy aging. Um, so I think whatever you can do to keep moving is incredibly important. You combine this with a healthy diet, you know, stay away from processed food, you know, have a balanced pilot, figure really out and listen to your own body what your body likes, what's good for you. Um, is important. And that's actually a general theme, you know. I think what we're learning now is that aging is incredibly personal. Um, you know, whatever you think works for one person might actually in the same shape or form not work for the next person. And that's also where the, the standard today is kind of skewed because we're trying to make a lot of decisions in healthcare based on an average, right? You know, you have some outcomes data, and then you have an average value, and you treat people towards that average value. That might be completely off the mark. Um, you know, there, there are people who are perfectly fine with a, you know, a parameter that's that's off the mark um, because of their own biology and their own way how they, how they age. Um, so I think, you know, keeping active, moving, um, good nutrition, um, Actually, the the kind of the mental health factor turns out becomes more and more important. Being happy really helps in 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 aging healthily. Um, and if you uh, and you try to combine those things, you know, if you move and it makes you happy, keep on doing this. This is a good thing. Um, but then, of course, there are some um, risk factors that everybody of us has, and you you want to figure out what those risk factors are, are and you want to try to figure out fairly early on what they are, but that also means that the general assessment of how you assess your health has to change. I mean, we we today pretty much wait until we get sick, um, and then we go to the doctor and we hope that there is a magic pill. Rather than asking the question in our 30s, 40s, you know, how is there a measure of my overall health that I actually can access and I can keep following over the years and see whether it actually gets worse or not worse and then do whatever it takes, you know, to not get, that it doesn't get worse. Um, that is where medicine has to move. It is, it is, 
it's really healthcare rather than sick care. Um, and we're getting more and more tools. I mean, there's no reason why you shouldn't get your five or 6,000 protein omics uh, assessment in your 20s and create your own baseline. Uh, we can do this today and things have, you know, things are becoming much more cheaper today. So you, you're actually intervening not to an end point of a disease, but you're intervening to a system's biology fingerprint that is very much you and, and you are your own uh, reference, really. So that's where the field is moving. I'm hearing some humility in this answer. It's, <laughs> I, I, you're, you're saying things like, be aware of the big levers of healthy living and, based on population studies over time. And try to, you know, play within those lanes, so to speak, but recognize that we're all individuals, we're different, and um, we, we need to pay attention to those, uh, those things that, that don't agree with our bodies and, and right. you know, drop them and try to incorporate um, things that are a little better for us. Uh, try things. I mean, until we, uh, uh, because there, it just isn't like, the single magic pill, and there's probably not going to be. No, I totally agree. I mean, you know, you mentioned sauna. I just know. So I, I, I was lucky in my life that I, I grew up in a house with a sauna, and you know, since then, whenever I moved, the first thing I did was building a sauna wherever I lived. So I, I've, I've had a sauna, you know, in my house all my life, and it makes me just. I mean, it just feels great. You know, um, I always did it because I felt great afterwards, you know, um, but now this science is pretty solid. You know, I think you, if you think about heat shock proteins and how important they are for homeostasis and proteostasis, um, there, there's clear science behind it. We're now seeing the science. So if somebody really feels good and feels healthy and, and, and you know, uh, feels resilient and, you know, bounces back from disease, there are a lot of things that those people are probably doing right in their life. They just have to figure out what these things are and we can do all a little bit of self-experimentation. That doesn't need to be drug and biohacking. This can be really very much driven by the things we could do first uh, without a physician here. And that's, you know, moving, nutrition, things like sauna. Um, you know, those are all really, really good things. Um, but now the science is catching up, and I think that's why I'm so excited, you know, working in that field now, because we can actually now look at, you know, name it, we can look at a thousand parameters and we can actually figure out which one out of the 1,000 are actually the most important ones for you personally. And well, then everything we, else. Go ahead. This is where we begin to uh, connect the dots between some of this uh, population data or observational and the underlying molecular biology. So I think, um, and you know this better than I, that um, the, the benefits of sauna have been observed in you know different cultures. I, I think Finland is one area where this is like part of um, yeah. a lot of the culture, and they have uh, they've demonstrated some some like uh, calculable longevity benefits in people. Now, with observational data, you always got to be careful because there's confounding factors. It might be something else that they're eating or drinking or, or whatever, but. Um, Again, it's not always just one thing, but if you can associate that um, that longevity benefit there with other things that are clearly happening in the bloodstream, in the molecular biology that you can measure with these thousand parameters that you're referencing, 
Well, now we're we're beginning to home in on um, a tighter story and, and one that we can actually take more concrete actions on. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the art is, of course, to figure out what's noise and what's not noise, right? To actually tease out the the real signals. That's not trivial. Um, and that's not done thinking in pathways, which, you know, pharma and biotech traditionally has been doing. This is really thinking about per perturbating a network, you know. This is really systems biology. So you have to look at the whole thing. Um, you start perturbation and you see what happens to the system and how the system moves. Um, that is really a completely new way of looking at disease and health. I mean, health is systems biology. Health is the sum of a lot of things in a very complicated network. But we have now the tools to actually disentangle that network and actually understand what happens in these networks. And and that's that's going to be a game changer. I mean, that's that's really a new way of looking at at, at disease and health. I mean, if you're sitting in the sauna, do you think about this kind of thing? Like, what's happening here to my system? Like, clearly, like, your lymphatic system is moving things around more. And your immune system has to adapt. Or your microbiome is probably undergoing some changes. A lot of things. Your, your neurological system is kind of shocked. There's, there's heat shock proteins being released. A lot of things are happening, especially when you move from hot to cold. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, and, and we're, we, we've never really had the capacity to measure such things uh, at, at large scale. But what you're saying is like now, now we're getting there. We, we can begin to think about these things. Yeah, that's true. And the funny thing is we, 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 we can measure it. You know, I think if you do sauna, it is not that you, you, you come out of the sauna and, and you say, oh, this one thing feels much, much better now. It is really an overall systems biology feeling you just feel good you know and it's not only one thing so you know that makes you kind of understand that this is this is a very very different thing than just looking at one single parameter and one single disease this is um the whole system you know and how you stress the system how this, the system is resilient and bounces back how the system actually moves over time i mean one of the I mean, you asked me before, what what do I measure for myself? And quite honestly, I, I do not take any of the rapamycins or metformins in this world. The only thing I really have an eye on is VO2 max. Um, because I think that is a really good measure that is actually fairly dynamic and responds fairly um, in time of how you're doing, how you're living, you know, if you had a if you had a week where you didn't move and you you were glutton and you ate too much, you can see that on your VO2 max, you know. And if you just keep your eye on your VO2 max, and then you ask yourself, you know, how do I feel better if my VO2 max doesn't go down or even go up? Yes, you do, because there's so many systems biology connected to that parameter. That's really the only thing I'm following right now. So I. Uh, I'm pretty conservative when it comes to self-medication and trying all these kind of things. Maybe that's the scientist in me, and I know that you know my metabolism and the way how you know I metabolize some drugs and drug-drug interactions. That that makes me nervous. If I don't know exactly what the dose is, I should take. I rather don't take anything. This is so funny because um, I, I really resonate with this. You know me as a high altitude mountaineer, outdoor athlete. I don't take any medicines. <laughs> 
at all, but I but I exercise a lot and I, I do watch that VO2 max. And you know, as you might imagine, given the things I've done, it's 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 like 18 year old athlete. It's kind of like hard to believe that at age 48, yep. the VO2 my VO2 max can can rank where it does. Um, but I'm not actually that surprised given the habits and um and the stresses. That, uh, yeah, but you also see it moving. You know, if you slip and you have, you know, a yeah. couple of bad, you can really actually see it slip. So this is actually one of the few parameters that I really believe is a real readout right now for human health. Yep. Uh -huh. If I had a good night's sleep and and ate well, and you know, I, I don't have any like you know sniffles or anything like that, I can actually see that VO two max going up with a good workout and yeah. going down conversely. Okay, so. You recently took a new job um, in this same vein. It's with the Hevolution Foundation backed by the Saudi government. Um, this is new, I think. So can, for people not familiar, what is Hevolution? Who are they and what are they trying to do? Yeah, so I think you know this is overall part of Saudi Arabia's strategy to figure out where they want to be in the future. So there's actually a big program called Vision 2030, and that really includes moving the whole society you know, to um, um, the next century. You know what what do what does Saudi Arabia have to do? And one of them clearly is health. You know, Saudi Arabia um, has has problems, especially with diabetes and and obesity. Um, Saudi Arabia is a pretty large country. I mean, you have 40 million people there. It's very different from the other uh, Emirates. Uh, you know, we have much much smaller um, populations, um, and you actually have a lot of young people there as well. But they're also moving towards um, an older age at the same time. So within that whole 2030 vision, um, one of the decisions was that we want to drive healthy aging and we want to drive, you know, progress for healthy aging, not only for Saudi Arabia, but whatever the foundation is going to do needs to be accessible for all, all mankind or all humankind. Uh, so that that's actually in the mission statement. This is not something only for rich uh, um, people in Saudi Arabia or rich people somewhere else in the world, but this is um, actually, with the idea to democratize progress um, that we can make in understanding how to live more healthy, but also you know potentially interventions for healthy aging. Um, so it's a it's a very large commitment. So the commitment is up to a billion a year uh, that is put into this this effort. And the foundation really has several pillars. You know, it is from you know education, um, public health, and public policy to um, um, grants program. There are actually a lot of grants that are giving out globally and worldwide. You can apply for grants at Evolution Foundation. Um, there's going to be um, a, a longevity or a healthy aging clinic connected to the whole program. And there will be intramural research. So what can Evolution actually cover that you know other people um, uh, other institutes or or the industry will not cover, but can actually really bring the field forward. And then there's the investment arm with the idea that if you actually do investments that that follow all the the thoughts and the guidelines that we have and really follow geroscience, um, 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 you know we can we can actually help this whole field forward. I mean, if you think about, 
funding in oncology versus funding in geosciences. I mean, this this is like you know two different worlds, you know, two different universe universes. Um, I mean, the money that's spent for healthy aging is is really pitiful. So um, that's really where the foundation thought they can make a difference. Um, and um, you know, when I was approached, you know, to to join Evolution, I really saw this as an extension of what we did with Apollo, because I saw that you know the the money that's out there to actually pursue this fundamental question about healthy aging is 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 not enough. We need a lot of money. We need to convince pharma to join. We need to convince governments to join. Um, and um, yeah, so I thought. I, I, this is an opportunity I cannot pass with all my experience and my background. And I want to help, you know, to steer these funds into the right direction to really make, make it successful. It sounds like, um, putting basic research funding, uh, and the, um, the business startup venture capital world under one roof. It's almost like, the a merger of NIH in the United States and the venture capital community, it, led by Saudi uh, sources. Is that it? Is it is? I mean, I think it's really driving to you know keep on funding geosciences. You know, we actually have a real problem of young scientists joining that field. Um, you know, most of the uh, KOLs in that field are fairly old by now. So we need to encourage young scientists to actually choose geosciences. Um, and that translation really hasn't happened because for translation, you usually need pharma, pharma buy-in, right? Because in the end, pharma will be the, you know, will be an important customer for the biotech pipeline coming out of translating geroscience into new ideas and new clinical programs. And we need that pharma buy-in. So we we really need to kind of supercharge this whole um, endeavor on, on every, you know, from early you know to translation to the biotechs and then really you know to um, figure out clinical development and clinical programs. Well, so they're funding um, basic research and I think postdocs, so young scientists are trying to lure into the field um, as well as folks like you who are connected to that entrepreneurial community and large pharma. Uh, and this is early days. This thing's just getting going. Uh, so it's, we'll find out, I guess, in a few years how successful it is. Well, what do you think it's going to take to um, compel more uh, basic science and more uh, startup activity in this area? Yeah, I think it's two things. One, we talked about this is really fun. We need, we need much more money. Uh, second one is we we actually really it would be really nice to have an early success story. You know, we talked about some of the uh, the first wave with Sertris, kind of the second wave with the Unities and the Calicos of that world, and we really haven't seen anything that was really successful in the clinic again because I think it was still very much bound to pathways rather than systems biology. But I think there is the chance in the next couple of years, we actually see the first really meaningful readouts in the clinic. And one of them will come, you know, probably from Rapalox. You know, Rapamycin finally is moving into the clinic. It is moving into indications that um, address, you know, some fundamental aging processes. Um, 
and uh, you know we'll 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 see several molecules in the clinic next year. So, and if one of those is really successful, if we understand how rapamycin really um, tunes the system to get to healthier tissues, that will be incredibly important because then people understand this is actually possible. This is not a pipe dream, but we can actually rationalize this. We actually have science that can explain what's happening. And we can actually treat people safely um, uh, for some, you know, fundamental diseases. You know, and no, maybe the degeneration is, is one of them. Maybe this is outdated, but it, it, rapamycin is an immunosuppressant, right? Well, rapamycin is a very complicated molecule. I mean, it it, it 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 acts not only on one thing, but it acts on several different pathways. One of them is immunosuppression. Um, that is probably going through a certain complex called mTOR complex two. Um, but it also um, affects a different complex, and that's mTOR complex 1. And it was always the idea, can we actually come up with selective mTOR complex 1 molecules um, that do not you know, actually touch the immunosuppression part? Um, and those molecules exist now, and those molecules are moving into the clinic next year. Um, so that, that, those are going to be very important proof-of-concept uh, studies. Okay. Um, because so that that would be a novel small molecule that would be patented, and whoever develops such a thing could sell it for a good amount of money to deliver a venture capital return, as opposed yes. to um, rapamycin, generic, cheap, available, as well, or metformin, again, cheap, widely available. There's not going to be um, a good in, a great incentive for anyone to run the long, expensive studies to really prove that it has a longevity or health span benefit. That's correct, yeah. So I think we'll, we will see a whole new wave of novel small molecules, NCEs. We will see a whole new wave of genetic, uh, epigenetic reprogramming approaches and gene therapy approaches that will actually um, address systems biology questions, you know, where we actually tuning a system rather than going after one single target. What do you think of the uh, obesity drug wave here, the GLP-1 and Gippers? I mean, it's um, it's caught the popular imagination, and we're actually beginning to see uh, cardiovascular benefits, kidney benefits. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some other things in there, maybe even a longevity benefit. <laughs> um, if, uh, if people are eating less uh, and living more active lives and have lower risk of some of those diseases of long-term aging, what do you think? Are we going to see some longevity and health span benefit right here in front of us with the, the obesity drugs? I think it could well be. I think it's early days. Uh, but I think it makes the point to some extent. It makes the point that there might be, you know, rheostats, master rheostats in the human biology. If you actually tweak them and GLP-1 clearly hits on a very important fundamental pathway or pathways or a network of pathways, if you chew them, you can really affect outcomes. Now, I mean, that's pretty much the thesis of <laughs> where the new healthy aging intervention uh, initiative goes towards. Um, it is possible. Um, it might not be possible with one single drug. I think as we see in many other therapeutics, I think aging will be a combination therapy in the end. And it might actually be a very personalized combination therapy where there's a certain combination of drugs targeting some of those master rheostats in your system's biology um, 
uh, that will improve your personal health. But it might not work exactly the same way for the next person. But I think we have now the means to actually understand this and and look at readouts that will us will make it actually possible to measure what happens uh, when we when we do those interventions. It's fascinating to think about. I mean, we just got done saying that there's no single magic bullet, <laughs> but then again, <laughs> there there might be something happening here for a large number of people with yes. multiple multiple benefits for healthy long-term living. I'm personally not running out to take it. I'd rather keep the weight off the rest of my life if I can. <laughs> if I can. Uh, and I think you think the same way. Um, okay, so back to this this long-term question about extending lifespan and health span. Do you, do you have a target in mind? Like, do you think people could be living to be 100 or, or beyond in, in vigorous ways by the middle part of the 21st century? Um, What's your pitch to young people? It's like, why why work on this area? Like, what can be accomplished? I mean, the pitch is really an economic one. Um, was I mean, if we can extend healthy aging by one year, we're talking trillions of dollars that are set free to be invested somewhere else. I mean, this is an incredible. I mean, if you think about. You know, polymorbidity in aging, it's an incredibly expensive um, thing, you know, because you have loss of productivity, you you will have family members who have to take care of uh, of older people, or you have spent enormous money of taking care of older people with with diseases. So so just the the amount of money that's set free by actually extending human mankind's a humankind's life by one year is, I mean, these are, these are incredibly high numbers, um, which you can better invest somewhere else, like, you know, solar energies, new energies, you know, you name it. Um, so it, it's really, far, you know, first and foremost, it's, it's an economic argument. We cannot afford to have a society that's growing older and older where everybody is not healthy in the end. This is going to break the bank. Um, so this is this is really one of the biggest arguments, quite honestly. And yeah, if people are living uh, unhealthy lives for long, long periods with with chronic disease, that's um, that's going to be a big drag on all of humanity. And and the flip side of it is, like you say, if you can free up people's human capabilities, that productivity for, you know, vigorous, healthy living well into your 60s or 70s, even just by adding one year of of that health span, uh, it's going to translate into pretty significant benefits. Like, who knows what people will do with that extra time, a quality time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and you know, it, you know, people of course are all getting nervous um, when they say, "Well, you know, now these all these rich people they are now spending a lot of money and they will live until 130." Um, that's not helping anyone. Um, but you know, again, there, you know, natural biology shows us some interesting um, ways. You know, if you actually look at this, the centenarian um, population, and there is now really more and more data on. Um, centenarians. Biology is really interesting in these people because, you know, a lot of them are actually really healthy until old, old age. 
And then the, 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 the type of sickness is actually really compressed. It's very different from people who start to become sick in their 60s and then drag on, you know, and, and not, not doing great for a long time. You know, if you go to the centenarian population, they actually, I, I mean, it's astounding how healthy those people are. Um, and then, you know, if their time comes, it goes very quickly. Um, I mean, that's, if you think about everything we were discussing, you know, um, uh, productivity, you know, being with family, you know, um, enjoying life, being happy, that's the best way, you know, that's how I want to end. I want to be happy, healthy, moving until my last day, and then it can happen overnight. That's fine with me. So it's not so much, you know, that, you know, defining this number, how long we have to live. It's really the health span. It's really every single healthy year you have. That's, that's where the money and that's where the happiness is. I think you just laid out some pretty uh, worthwhile life goals there. Live to 100, live well to 100. <laughs> Jens Eckstein, thank you for joining me today on The Long Run. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.